This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Well, good morning. My name is Josh, one of the pastors here. I hope you all had a happy Thanksgiving and uh, add my welcome to Ryan's from earlier. Uh, Things are a little different for us uh, this morning. So if you're, if you're new, uh, if you're just visiting, uh, this does look a little bit uh, different, but we are glad that you're here because this is a, an important time in the life of our church and that we are at the midpoint of uh, what we've been calling our Making Room Initiative. We've been working, if you noticed outside, uh, the construction on the addition to our building is underway and we're just about halfway through uh, the fulfillment phase of of uh, the giving fundraising phase of this project. And uh, we've got 13 months left in the uh, fulfillment phase, December uh, to next December to December 2024. And we're using this particular time all month, we've been talking about this uh, as a chance to sort of evaluate how this last year will go and our contribution to it. It's a chance for those of you who may have come along since we got started uh, to jump in if this is your church and if this is what you'd like to be a part of. We really do want this to be uh, the work of the whole church. And so if you didn't get a chance to make a a commitment last year, this is a chance uh, to do that. And then for folks who did have a chance to commit last year, this is an opportunity to evaluate that, perhaps reaffirm uh, your commitment to finish strong in the last year uh, of this project, or perhaps even to increase, either because of increased capacity on your part, um, more happened and and you have more uh, capacity than you thought you were going to, uh, or perhaps just in response to the increased need we've been talking about over these last few weeks. And so uh, toward the end of our, our time together, we'll be turning in our uh, commitment cards. If you've seen those, they should be scattered throughout your rows as well. If you haven't had a chance to get them, they're on the backs of the uh, seats in front of you. And you can take a look at those. We'll, uh, I'll, I'll lead you through that time toward the end uh, of our sermon. Uh, but this month, uh, we've also been studying uh, the book of Ruth together, and uh, it's been a sweet study for us as a church uh, as we've walked through this really wonderful story of hospitality and welcome, which we've been saying is really the why behind the what of all that we've been trying to do uh, with the Making Room Project. Ruth is a, a story that's been framing for us our calling as a missionary congregation and helping to shape our understanding of what it means to welcome others as Christ has welcomed us, what it means to offer the hospitality of God that we've been shown in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to take up the very last part uh, of the story this morning, Ruth chapter 4. But before we get into the story, before I read it to you, just a little recap the story so far. Uh, Ruth is a, a foreign woman, Moabite, living in Israel. She travels to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, And uh, it's desperate circumstances for her. She's lost her husband. She's lost her father-in-law. She's lost her home. They're living now in poverty, living entirely on the uh, generosity of others. And in last week's chapter, Ruth goes to Boaz in a desperate move and asks Boaz to marry her. She asks him to serve as a kinsman redeemer, someone in Israel who can redeem their circumstances and create a new path for them, a new future for them. But we learn in our text this morning, there's another relative who is closer, a closer relation to Naomi than Boaz is, who has a right to perform this duty if he so chooses before Boaz. And so Boaz goes to see this person to see 
what he'll do. And that's where our story picks up. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it to Ruth chapter 4. If you're using one of the Bibles that's in your rows there, it starts on page 224. It's also printed for you in your bulletin, and you can follow along there uh, if you'd like. Ruth chapter 4, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. And again, this will conclude uh, our study of Ruth together. Ruth chapter 4. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the relative said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon and also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than the seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask by your spirit that you might help us to 
reflect not just on the meaning of this passage, uh, its interpretation, but also its meaning for our own lives, its application. And we pray that even as we think about our role amongst our neighbors and our friends, our coworkers and our classmates, as we think about our role as a church to bear witness to your redemption that you've brought in our lives through Jesus Christ, I pray that you would help us indeed to make application in such a way that we are able to call attention to Christ our King. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, well, this is a bit of a, a, a complicated passage, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot going on here, much of it culturally distant from us. I mean, probably, uh, you know, I'm not sure that many of you uh, have ever closed a deal at work and, and sort of to seal the deal, took off your shoe and handed it to the person that you're confirming the deal with, right? There's some things here that are uh, a little bit different, a little bit uh, culturally removed from us, hard to understand. But the big picture is that the chapter here is rounding out this story of redemption. Boaz, having cared for Ruth, now seeks her redemption and the redemption of her mother-in-law, Naomi. And there are three aspects to this redemption that I want you to see. And I'm really going to sort of retell the story through those three lenses this morning. And the three aspects of redemption are these. Uh, the payment of debt, number one. Number two, a relationship of love. And then finally, a community of hope. The three aspects of redemption here are the payment of debt, a relationship of love, and a community of hope. So let's think about it that way this morning. All right, so first, the payment of debt. And this really is one of the central themes that just runs straight through all of the storyline of the Bible. I mean, how does the story of the Bible go after all? I mean, we have a creator who gave us all things. He gave us himself, right, a relationship with him. Uh, He made us in his image. He made us to know him. And he gave us the earth, the land, the plants, the animals, a home in which to live, food in which to grow and thrive. And he gave us each other. He gave us the capacity for community, for relationship. And we were made to be stewards of all this, to bring out light and life as we reflect the glory of God and express love toward one another. But then we sinned, starting with Adam and Eve and then on and on ever since. Sin has brought about drastic and disastrous consequences. We wasted the world. Rather than light and life, darkness and death came to the world that God made. And we became debtors. We squandered the gifts of God, and now we live under the burden of an unpayable debt. And I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, but there are several different theological explanations for the nature of this debt that we owe. Some think it is primarily a debt to Satan. As he is the prince of the world, the air, he, is, uh, he controls a world that's caught in the grip of evil. And so when we sin, we become prisoners to the forces of darkness. And so the payment of death, debt then is a ransom to the evil one in order to set us free. This is the idea that's pictured in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. As Aslan ransoms Edmund from the power of the white witch. Now, others argue that this debt is uh, primarily a debt to God. What do we owe God? Well, he's our creator. He's our designer. He's our Lord and our king. And so we owe him allegiance and obedience. Not just some of the time, right? But all of the time, every day. And in not just our actions, but in our hearts and our minds as well. And so our sin then is a transgression 
against his law, against his rule, against his reign, against our own design, and we deserve God's wrath. That is unless the penalty can be paid, the debt can be paid. This is the formulation that you can find in the four spiritual laws or or lots of other gospel presentations. And there are more angles on this, pointing to specific aspects of our need for atonement, but where all these theories of atonement come together is the notion that we all stand under an unpayable debt. We're all under the wages of sin. That's the plight of every person. But the good news of scripture is that God did not leave us alone in our debt, in our sin. He promised to redeem us from the consequences of sin. Israel, Israel is called in Isaiah 35, the ransomed of the Lord. Her worship has at its center a sacrificial system, which is meant for the payment of sins. Maybe the high point of Israel's life together is what's called the year of the Lord's favor, a jubilee year where everyone's debt is wiped clean. Everyone's debt is forgiven. This has tremendous economic and social effect, but it also has a theological dimension. It's meant to embody the reality of God's forgiveness, God's redemption. The New Testament, though, when you turn the page over from the Old Testament to the New, points out that there's a problem. This debt is never finally paid, never fully paid. The priest would come over and over and over, offering sacrifices for sin, but the debt was never fully paid. Hebrews chapter 9 says that the beauty of what Christ has come into the world to do is to finally make payment for that debt. It says in Hebrews 9, 26, that Jesus appeared once and for all. We just sang it, right? And it is finished. He appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus came to fully and finally pay the debt. That's why in Luke chapter four, when Jesus stands up to preach his very first sermon, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who have been oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What's he saying there? He's saying it's jubilee time, right? It's come, I've come to take away the debt. Mark chapter 10 describes, Jesus describes his ministry. He says, the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Colossians chapter two, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us. Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Why those without money? Well, because Christ has paid the debt in full. Jesus came to do in his death what the other sacrifices could never fully do. The need for redemption, the payment of debt is one of the central ideas that runs throughout all of the Bible. And it's here in our text too. Ruth and Naomi are in some serious debt. They have a field that belonged to Naomi's husband, Elimelech, but it's a field that they cannot afford. They can't pay workers to cultivate and to reap upon it. They cannot keep up the land. They're short on food. They're gleaning from other fields just to stay alive. They need somebody who could pay their debt. They need a kinsman redeemer. We talked about this role uh, that would be played in Israelite society last week, but the word kinsman, it's worth noting. The word kinsman is also related to the word kindness. 
They need a kinsman who would be kind and who would take on this role, who would pay their debt. And so our chapter opens at the city gate where all the official business would happen. And Boaz goes there to talk to this unnamed relative, this person who is more closely related to Naomi. And so Boaz calls some people around. All right, Tenny, you come around, be my witnesses. And then he says to this man, this relative of Naomi's, he says, I want to know if you intend to serve in this role. I want to know if you intend to be the kinsman redeemer. And Boaz is a little sneaky in how he presents this. Because at first he just tells the man about the field that Naomi owns. And and the man hears about this field and he says, I will redeem it. It's a pretty good deal, actually. Yes, there would be an outlay of money for him now. But he gets the field in return. And more importantly, this field would stay in his family line because Naomi is older. She has no heir. And so if he buys this field, then this will add to his wealth. It will add to his family's wealth. It will add to the inheritance for his own children. It's a good deal. He says, I will redeem it. But then Boaz continues. Oh, and by the way, you'll also get Ruth, the Moabite, And with her, you'll probably have kids and and you'll be taking care of those kids. And oh, you should probably take care of Naomi, her mother-in-law. And then the child that Ruth has with you will be the heir. It won't be your children who will be the heir uh, to this land. It will be Ruth's children that will keep the family line of Malon and eventually Elimelech going. And all of a sudden, this deal doesn't seem so sweet anymore. He says in verse six, I cannot redeem it for myself. Lest I impair my own inheritance, take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And then in verses 7 and 8, he does the shoe thing we talked about, right? In the presence of all these witnesses, he hands Boaz his sandal as a sign, saying, I'm giving away my rights to this role. And then maybe the high point of the whole book of Ruth, verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Boaz says, I've taken on this role. I've paid the debt. I've taken Ruth to be my wife. Now, what in the world could this ancient Near Eastern practice have to do with us? What could this have to do with our mission in Norwood and Cincinnati more broadly? Well, remember, this story is about redemption coming to Ruth and Naomi. They had nothing. But then someone steps in and pays their debt. He steps in to pay for something that to them was an unpayable situation. The situational context here in this story is primarily economic, but this is ancient Israel. And as I said before, there's always not just a social or an economic dimension. There's always a theological dimension. Economic and social laws always in Israel serve the role of bearing witness to something grander, something more cosmic in nature. This practice of the kinsman redeemer, stepping in somebody to pay someone's debt, was meant to bring God's people into the grander story of a God who redeems their own debt. And so what does this mean for us? Well, it means first, the acts of kindness and deeds of mercy done in faith are part of our calling too. 
Acts of kindness and deeds of mercy done in faith are part of our calling as God's people. Now, we're not bound by the laws of leveret marriage. I'm not saying that. But the New Testament commissions God's people again and again to seek the good of its neighbors, to see their sorrows, to seek their flourishing, their shalom, to provide sheltering kindness, to meet tangible needs. And when we do this, we bear witness to the kindness and salvation and redemption of God. But those deeds of mercy, as good as they are on their own, they should never be separated from the theological dimension. We do those things because we are bearing witness to the God of redemption. We cannot separate redemptive actions from the redemptive goal, which is to see people reconciled to God. All real shelter, fully and finally, is found in Jesus Christ. We cannot leave that message behind in the name of doing humanitarian good, bearing witness to the redemption of God is what makes these deeds truly Christian. And so the first act of redemption in our story is the payment of debt. The second is a relationship of love. Redemption involves not just taking away something that you owe, but it's giving you something that you've longed for, right? And we all long for love. We all long to be long. We all long for relationship. And you see this in the Bible storyline as well, right? When you think about what stands at the center of all reality, what is that? What is at the center of all reality? Well, the Bible's answer to that is the life of the triune God stands at the center of all reality, which means at the center of reality, the Christian story says, is a community of love. When God made humans beings, then he made us to share in this love, to be partakers in this love with him and with each other. And one of the horrors of sin is that this is what we lose. We're cut off from the fellowship of God. We have lost our easiness with one another. Sin makes us not just debtors, but exiles, alienated from God, at enmity with one another. God does not leave the story off there. The actions of God we see over and over again in the Old Testament demonstrate his pursuit of a wayward people. Time and again, God likens himself to the spouse, the loving spouse of Israel. Your maker is your husband, it says. Isaiah 54, verse 5. Time and again, that image is used. The Song of Solomon, Hosea, God giving us a vivid portrayal of him as the lover of his people. The temple in the Old Testament, it's not just a place where you would go to worship, but it was the place where God's glory would dwell. Sin forced Adam and Eve out of the garden, and yet God continues to make his home with his people in the temple. Even the sacrifices, which we normally think of as a payment for sin, but after the animal was killed, what happened next? You would eat it. Right? The intimacy of table fellowship. A sacrifice is made to pay the penalty for sin, but then they would sit down and eat with God. And the mission of Israel, called out from the nations, meant to be distinct, but the goal was not ultimately and finally to be separate from the nations, but from the nations to be welcomed in to the family of God, to be with the people of God. But you close the Old Testament, and this story is never complete. Because the Old Testament ends with the people still in exile, the prophets silenced, 
temple destroyed, the glory of God removed. But in Jesus, redemption finally comes. You turn over the page to the New Testament. In John chapter 1, one of the most famous of the Christmas texts, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God has come, taken on flesh to be with his people, to pursue his people. John 15, Jesus says, I call you not servants, but friends. 2 Peter chapter 3, it says that when we are in Christ, we become partakers of the divine nature. Right? We get to partake of this community of love that existed before the foundation of the world. We're invited into it. And in Revelation 19, we see the fulfillment of this, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Christ takes his bride to himself, the church. And in Revelation 21, God dwells fully and finally with his people. A relationship of love. This theme is in our story too, isn't it? Because this is not just an economic rescue. Ruth is a love story. I mean, at the end of the day, what distinguished Boaz from this other relative, this other possible kinsman redeemer? Well, the other guy, right? He was willing at first, right? He says no, though, at the end. Now, why? Well, to buy the field, that seemed like a pretty good deal because that was just writing some money, right? They're giving some money, writing a check. But it's a whole other thing, right? To welcome somebody into your family, which is what he would have had to do if he would follow through on the whole thing. It's one thing to write a check. It's another thing to bring somebody into your family, to bring them under your care, to make their children your children, to make their grandchildren your, your grandchildren. And Boaz provides not just money for the field, but he takes Ruth to be his wife. And it's not just an economic transaction, but together they build a family. They're part of building Israel. And at the historical level, this is a social act. This is a way to provide for widows. It's a way to continue the family name. But remember in Israel, nothing was ever merely social, merely economic. There's always theological import. This bears witness to the God who redeems his people and welcomes them as family. A God not just of power and glory, but a God of love. A God who desires relationship, who took on flesh to make it happen. He even laid down his life for his friends. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that the vocation of hospitality can never be merely transactional. It can't be just solely even meeting a need can never be just writing a check. It can never just be turning in a commitment card. It has to be relational. It has to be about people. It has to be about welcome. It has to be about inviting folks from the outside in into the very family of God. It's easier to write a check. You can do that from a distance, but to invite people into the family, into the community, that's messy. That's work. And that's our calling. Redemption, right? the payment of a debt, a relationship of love. But there's one more aspect here in our story to redemption, and that's a community of hope. Because God doesn't just bring a message of redemption to his people, but he gives us a community in which to enjoy it and live it out. And I have to be quick here, but this is shot through the Bible storyline as well. We were made for community. 
We were made for communion with God. We were made to be connected to one another. In fact, God in the garden says to Adam, it's not good for Adam to be alone, for the man to be alone. We are made for God and for each other. But sin wrecks all this. It disorders all this. It disrupts all of this. And we become homeless and isolated wanderers. But even at the start, even as Adam and Eve are on their way out of the garden, God says to them, before you go, I want you to know that all hope is not lost. I'm still going to build something through you. There's going to be pain and there's going to be tears and death and travail, but I am going to build a people. And in that uh, first gospel, the proto-evangelion, as the theologians call it, the first gospel, Genesis 3.15, right there in the midst of the punishment for the fall, God gives a word of hope that this hope will come ultimately through the birth of a child. Seed of the woman will one day crush the head of the serpent. Hope and redemption will come through a child being born. The story of Ruth ends with the birth of a child. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And then these women They surround Naomi, they they bless her, they sing over her. In verse 14, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Naomi is the woman who said earlier, Don't call me when she gets back to Bethlehem. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Just call me Mara, which means bitter. That's what my life is to me. It's bitter. I went away full and I come back here empty. But here at the end of the story, she's anything but empty. Her hands are full. She's holding her grandchild. She's been so well loved by Ruth. She's had the kindness of Boaz bestowed upon her. She has a future now in this little boy. And is there any greater picture of hope than Naomi taking care of her grandchild, acting as his nurse, verse 16? But it's even better than that. Because Obed's birth ultimately leads to the birth of David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. Ruth ends with a genealogy, but the New Testament begins with a genealogy. And that same line of David runs all the way up to the birth of Jesus Christ, the king of kings. Savior of the world, redeemer of our souls. And so what are we to do with this? I've been thinking a lot this week about this community of women that surround Naomi. It really is a beautiful picture. They show up a couple of times in the story The first time is when Naomi comes back to Bethlehem. She's devastated. She's empty. She's bitter. They show up and the women are around her. And we don't know exactly what they say or even really if they say anything. But we know that they hear Naomi's sad story. And maybe the point is they don't have much to say. They just weep with those who weep. But here, at the end, they do have something to say. They rejoice with those who rejoice. And they do it in a way that is shot through with theological hope. They don't just say, oh, Naomi, we're so happy for you. I mean, that would be a nice sentiment all in itself, but that's not what they say. Rather, they point Naomi 
to the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. Because he has not left you without a redeemer. And then they name the child and they frame his birth through the lens of hope, through Obed, they're saying. God is bringing you into a story of blessing and a future. And isn't that what we get to do for each other when we're in community together? Isn't that what we're meant to do? Help each other reframe our stories through the lens of scripture, through the lens of theological hope, hope in a redeemer, hope in the God of redemption. We do it when we get here together on Sundays. We pray and we sing and we tell the story through the creed. We greet each other with the peace that comes through Christ. We sing over one another these songs of redemption all the while reframing our individual stories according to this bigger and broader story of redemption in Jesus Christ. It's what we do for each other, but isn't that also what we're meant to do for the world? In a world that's full of cynicism and fear and anxiety and despair, who are we? We're meant to be the hope people. Not a happy face, people, not an externals, but people who do have some real solid hope to offer, a story to tell, a framework to understand what's happening in the world, what's gone wrong with it, but also where it's going. Who are we? We're meant to be the people of hope that tell a story of hope. And just like these women singing over over Naomi, we bear witness to the God of hope. And like Ruth and Naomi, we get to participate in the building of the kingdom of God. Not just us, but our children and our grandchildren and their genealogies here in this room too. And all those who will come after us, that's part of what we're praying for in this Making Room initiative, creating space for ministry right now, but also for the future, for the kingdom of God to be more fully realized in this place as we bear together witness to the God of redemption, the God of hope. Isn't this a great story that we get to tell? And can you believe that we actually get to be a part of it? Our hope and our prayer is that as we do the sort of the what, the building of this edition, being part of making room, that we're giving attention even more to the why, right? This whole story of Ruth is meant to shape our understanding as a missionary congregation. What is the story of Ruth? At the very beginning of the story is a person who stands on the outside of the kingdom of God, on the outside of the people of God. But by the time we get to the end, she's welcomed not just into the people of God, but into the lineage of the king. And isn't that the hope of all mission? And the way that it happens is through the hospitality, the sheltering kindness of God's people. May it be so with us here. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.